Chapter 10 of the Star Chamber, an historical romance, volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 10, The Prentices and Their Leader. While the Marquis of Buckingham and his suite were moving towards the wharf amid the acclamations of the crowd, for in the early part of his brilliant career the haughty favorite was extremely popular with the multitude, probably owing to the princely largesses he was in the habit of distributing among them, a very different reception awaited those who succeeded him. The hurrahs and other vociferations of delight and enthusiasm were changed into groans, hootings, and discordant yells when Sir Francis Mitchell came in sight, supported between two stout myrmidons and scarcely able to maintain his perpendicular as he was borne by them towards the wherry in waiting for him near the stairs. Though the knight was escorted by Captain Blutter and his Alsatian bullies, several of the crowd did not seem disposed to confine themselves to jeers and derisive shouts, but menaced him with some rough usage. Planting themselves in his path, they shook their fists in his face, with other gestures of defiance and indignity, and could only be removed by force. Captain Blutter and his roaring blades assumed their fiercest looks, swore their loudest oaths, twisted their shaggy mustaches, and tapped their rapier hilts, but they prudently forbore to draw their weapons, well knowing that the proceeding would be a signal for a brawl, and that the cry of clubs would be instantly raised. Amongst the foremost of those who thus obstructed Sir Francis and his party was a young man with a lithe, active figure, bright black eyes, full of liveliness and malice, an olive complexion, and a gypsy-like cast of countenance. Attired in a tight-fitting brown frieze jerkin with stone buttons and purple hose, his head was covered with a Montero cap and a cock's feather stuck in it. He was armed neither with sword nor dagger, but carried a large cudgel or club, the well-known and formidable weapon of the London prentices, in the use of which, whether as a quarterstaff or missile, they were remarkably expert. Even a skillful swordsman stood but poor chance with them. Besides this saucy-looking personage who was addressed as Dick Taverner by his comrades, there were many others who, to judge from their habiliments and their cudgels, belonged to the same fraternity as himself. That is to say, they were apprentices to grocers, drapers, haberdashers, skinners, ironmongers, vintners, or other respectable artificers or trade-folk. Now Dick Taverner had an especial grudge against our two extortioners, for though he himself, being apprenticed to a bookseller in Paul's churchyard, had little concern with them, he was the son of an innkeeper, Simon Taverner, of the Emperor's Head, Garlic Hill, who had been recently mined by their exactions, his license taken from him, and his house closed, enough to provoke a less meddlesome spark than Dick, who had vowed to revenge the parental injuries on the first opportunity. The occasion now seemed to present itself, and it was not to be lost. Chancing to be playing at bowls in the alley behind the three cranes with some of his comrades on the day in question, Dick learnt from Cyprian what was going forward, and the party resolved to have their share in the sport. If needful, they promised the drawer to rescue his mistress from the clutches of her antagonists, and to drive them from the premises. But their services in this respect were not required. They next decided on giving Sir Francis Mitchell a sound ducking in the Thames. Their measures were quickly and warily taken. Issuing from an arched doorway at the side of the tavern, they stationed some of their number near it, while the main party posted themselves at the principal entrance in front. Scouts were planted inside to communicate with Cyprion, and messengers were dispatched to cry clubs 
and summoned the neighboring prentices from Queenhead, Thames Street, Trinity Lane, Old Fish Street, and Dowgate Hill, so that fresh auxiliaries were constantly arriving. Buckingham, with the young nobles and gallants, were, of course, allowed to pass free, and were loudly cheered, but the prentices soon ascertained from their scouts that Sir Francis was coming forth, and made ready for him. Utterly unconscious of his danger, the inebriate knight replied to the jibes, scoffs, and menaces addressed to him, by snapping his fingers in his opponent's faces, and irritating them in their turn. But if he was insensible of the risk he ran, those around him were not, and his two supporters endeavored to hurry him forward. Violently resisting their efforts, he tried to shake them off, and more than once stood stock still until compelled to go on. Arrived at the stairhead, he next refused to embark, and a scene of violent altercation ensued between him and his attendants. Many boats were moored off the shore, and a couple of barges close at hand, and the watermen and oarsmen standing up in their craft listened to what was going forward with much apparent amusement. Hastily descending the steps, Captain Blutter placed himself near the wherry intended for the night, and called to the others to make short work of it and bring him down. At this juncture the word was given by Dick Taverner, who acted as leader, and in less than two minutes Sir Francis was transferred from the hands of his myrmidons to those of the prentices. To accomplish this, a vigorous application of cudgels was required, and some broken pates were the consequence of resistance. But the attack was perfectly successful. The myrmidons and Alsatians were routed, and the prentices remained masters of the field, and captors of a prisoner. Stupefied with rage and astonishment, Captain Blutter looked on, at one moment thinking of drawing his sword and joining the fray, but the next, perceiving that his men were evidently worsted, he decided upon making off, and with this view he was about to jump into the wherry, when his purpose was prevented by Dick Taverner and a few others of the most active of his companions, who dashed down the steps to where he stood. The captain had already got one foot in the wherry, and the watermen, equally alarmed with himself, were trying to push off, when the invaders came up and, springing into the boat, took possession of the oars, sending Blutter floundering into the Thames, where he sunk up to the shoulders, and stuck fast in the mud, roaring piteously for help. Scarcely were the prentices seated than Sir Francis Mitchell was brought down to them, and the poor knight, beginning to comprehend the jeopardy in which he was placed, roared for help as lustily as the half-drowned Alsatian captain, and quite as ineffectually. The latter was left to shift for himself, but the former was rowed out some twenty or thirty yards from the shore, where, a stout cord being fastened to his girdle, he was plunged head foremost into the river, and after being thrice drawn up, and as often submerged again, he was dragged on board and left to shiver and shake in his dripping habiliments in the stern of the boat. The bath had completely sobered him, and he bitterly bemoaned himself, declaring that if he did not catch his death of cold, he should be plagued with cramps and rheumatism during the rest of his days. He did not dare to utter any threats against his persecutors, but he internally vowed to be revenged upon them, cost what it might. The prentices laughed at his complaints, and Dick Taverner told him that as he liked not cold water, he should have spared them their ale and wine, but as he had meddled with their liquors and those who had sold them, they had given him a taste of a different beverage, which they should provide free of cost for all those who interfered with their enjoyments and the rights of the public. Dick added, that his last sousing was in requital for the stoppage of the emperor's head, and that, with his own free will, he would have left him under the water with a stone round his neck. This measure of retributive justice accomplished, 
the prentices and their leader made for the stairs, where they landed after telling the watermen to row their fare to the point nearest his lodgings, an order which was seconded by Sir Francis himself, who was apprehensive of further outrage. Neither would he tarry to take in Captain Blutter, though earnestly implored to do so by that personage, who, having in his struggle sunk deeper into the oozy bed, could now only just keep his bearded chin and mouth above the level of the tide. Taking compassion upon him, Dick Taverner threw him an oar, and instantly grasping it, the Alsatian was in this way dragged ashore, presenting a very woeful spectacle, his nether limbs being covered with slime, while the moisture poured from his garments, as it would from the coat of a water-spaniel. His hat had floated down the stream, and he had left one boot sticking in the mud, while his buff jerkin, saturated with wet, clung to his skin like a damp glove. Leaving him to wring his cloak and dry his habiliments in the best way he could, the leader of the prentices collected together his forces, and, disposing them in something like military array, placed himself at their head and marched towards the tavern, where they set up a great shout. Hitherto they had met with no interruption whatever. On the contrary, the watermen, bargemen, and others had cheered them on in their work of mischief, and the crowd on shore appeared rather friendly to them than otherwise. Flushed with success, the riotous youths seemed well disposed to carry their work of retribution to extremities, and to inflict some punishment upon Sir Giles proportionate to his enormities. Having ascertained from their scouts that no one connected with the usurious knight had come forth, they felt quite secure of their prey, and were organizing a plan of attack, when intelligence was brought by a scout that a great disturbance was going on inside, in consequence of a young gentleman having been arrested by Sir Giles and his crew, and that their presence was instantly required by Madame Bonaventure. On hearing this, Dick Taverner shouted, To the rescue! To the rescue! and rushed into the house, followed by the prentices, who loudly echoed his cries. Parisi, monsieur! Parisi! This way! This way! vociferated Cyprien, who met them in the passage. The bowling alley! There they are! But the Gascon's directions were scarcely needed. The clashing of swords would have served to guide the prentices to the scene of conflict. End of chapter 10